You're listening to Felony Podcast on the Startup Radio Network. The Felony Podcast explores ex-felons that have gone on to launch their own startups. We explore the ups, the downs, the behind-the-bar stories with these founders. Felony Podcast airs every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. Yeah, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of the Felony Inc. Podcast. Broadcasting live from Ned Space in the 11th floor of the majestic Union Bank Tower in scenic downtown Portland, Oregon. Here at the uh, Felony Inc. Podcast, we, we like to try to help things out with the uh, recidivism rate for uh, you know, people that get, find themselves uh, situated in the uh, prison industrial complex. Uh, in a society that houses the largest inmate population on earth, anything that can be done to curb the recidivism rate is incredibly valuable, and that's what we're doing here today. I'm your host for the for the morning. My name is DJ Dick Hennessy, and we have a very special guest in the house today. His name is Tim Jensen. He's an independent videographer. Uh, highly recommended by Dave Dahl, the former host of Villain Inc. podcast, and still currently working at the... Uh, the factory, is that correct? Yes, I am. I'm a partner down there at uh, Dave's Killer Bread. Nice. So, uh, Tim, you listened to a couple episodes. You kind of know what the format is here. Uh, typically, we start off with uh, your your upbringing, uh, whether that be childhood, adolescence, and what kind of brought you to the position that you're at right now. So, um, yeah, without further ado, feel free to uh, introduce yourself. Uh, yeah, again, my my name's Tim Jensen. Yeah, I grew up in the Midwest, uh, Omaha, Nebraska, you know, kind of on the edge of the city. And, uh, you know, a lot of people think, do they even have electricity there or running water? But uh, it's a fairly uh, a large city and, uh, you know, a, kind of a tip, typical, uh, you know, lower middle class uh, background. You know, uh, both my parents didn't even really graduate high school, but hard workers, you know, I was taught a good hard work ethic and lived kind of on the edge of what would could be considered the hood in, in a city of that size and went to a school that was kind of like that, very mixed population. So I was exposed to a lot of different stuff as a kid, but uh, one of the things that brought me here that I was exposed to was drinking. And uh, and it wasn't just exposed to it, it was, you know, drinking very alcoholic family and at the time it wasn't presented to me as alcoholism it was like a cool thing a thing we do a thing that you have to do when there's a party or a celebration or almost a daily event and it was really shown to me as a a rite of passage a, you know a thing that makes you a better man a thing that makes everything more fun and to grow up that way as a child um you know i really bought into that and i don't i don't try to lay blame on that but it was a big, uh, big thing to me, and I looked forward to it. I looked forward to being old enough to legally drink, but I started drinking early on. And I had a father who, you know, I found out later was an alcoholic, uh, and it was rampant in both sides of the family. But again, that word was never used to me. Um, but I was probably an alcoholic. I was born that way. And I mean, I was, you know, my dad died when I was 12 from symptoms that related to that and, wow. you know, smoking, drinking, all of that stuff. So I grew up with it all around me, and that's a big piece of where I ended up. Yeah. Uh, what year did you start, like, drinking yourself? I mean, I was born in the 60s, and I had a sister 
who at the time, you know, I had that thrown in my face a lot, a front page article, and she was involved in a big drug arrest. And so I was kind of shown that that's not cool. That's do not do that. Do not get involved in using drugs or selling drugs. And it was all around me in my neighborhood. I had friends who were in weed and, you know, there was cocaine then, uh, meth. I don't think if it existed, it was called something else like crank or something like that, uh, high school. But it was around me. And, and there were white gangs, black gangs, you know, in my neighborhood. And, and, and uh, I had choices to join them. And most of them were associated with drugs or get my head beat in. And I chose to get my head beat in. I, um, I'm bigger now than I was then, but I was a target to get getting a lot of fights and I lost them, most of them. And some of those guys, you know, I found out later went to prison. Some of them were dead and some of them went on and got, you know, like uh, degrees and had great careers. So it was a weird, a weird way to grow up, a weird, but it's not the worst thing. I mean, I've seen in, in my career as a journalist and all the different things, I've been all over the world and I've seen, I mean, I, I had an, it, 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 in that context, it was still an amazing way to grow up and a lot of fun being had, you know, kind of a typical, you know, of what's available in America. There's way worse and there's way better. And you were kind of in that that middle, the even keel area. Yeah, and somehow, you know, I I was a smart kid, and I was like an honor student, and I used to piss teachers off, and that was back when they could hit you and stuff. Uh, you know, I, I left the ca the Catholic school system. All my siblings went through it, and I was like an oops, not only an oops. Uh, my mother had a operation that to not have any more children because they had lost a child at age 10 before I was born, so they were done with it, and then here comes me. So I had these siblings that were like a generation older than me and then me. So they all went through the Catholic school system and I was asked to leave in second grade. So that was an indicator of some issues that I had as far as being a class clown and a look at me kind of thing that, you know, the, the addiction to alcohol kind of fed that later in life. But, you know, <laughs> nobody came to me and said, hey, we see... We see a dismal future for you. You may want to get a heads up here. You know, I, I just, it, it was a euphoria to me to be able to control stuff with my mouth and with my uh, uh, disruptive behavior. And that, you know, that played out. <laughs> that makes sense. Uh, so is it fair to say you started drinking in high school? I did, my dad died when I was 12. And uh, I think, you know, even before that, wedding receptions, I, my grandfather owned a bar, one of the first bars to open back up after Prohibition in Omaha, and they were Irish, Irish pub, it was an Irish pub, and I grew up going to weddings and stuff, and, you know, give Timmy a, a you know, screwdriver or a beer, and, and, and see how funny he is, how, how funny he dances, and flips around, and I had that memory of it, and that feeling of it. And then when my dad died, you know, the, 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 the barn door was open and I had a Native American friend down the street from me who was like my best friend and they knew how to make wine. And so he daily brought wine to middle school and middle school I was, if I wanted to, I could get drunk every day on the way to school and then go to honors classes and perform. So as crazy as that sounds, I was like a, a functional alcoholic at age 12 or 13 and to say that i mean that may that makes me part of me shudder um as a journalist or whatever but that that's what i i was 
just waiting to progress. The yeah. slow progression had started already. <laughs> so things didn't work out at uh, you know Catholic school, and then you go to regular schools. And then after that, you're accepted to University of Nebraska. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. You know, I was, I was, you know, at birth, I, you know, beyond the alcoholism or what. I mean, I was like, he's going to play football at Nebraska, and that's back when they were, you know, number one every every year, and they were, you know, on TV all the time. And and I grew up thinking I was going to do that too, and I wanted to be smart as well, and not just an athlete. But I never quite got big enough, so I got like Division two big enough. Um, but I was an underachiever. I, I realized I, I was more into being half-assed. Like, can I do good enough to start? Can I do good enough to get the honors class? Can I do good enough in this? And then, and then coast. And I became a coaster, and I I dug that too. I like to brag about that. Like, I can be as good as you without really putting a whole bunch of effort into it. And, uh, you know, I mean, I regret that if I want to still hold on to regrets, which I'm learning how not to. But, you know, I didn't push myself. So I was D2 level, which was the University of Nebraska at the Omaha campus. They're now the same thing, but we had our own team at the time. And so I played one one half spring season for them until I got a head injury. Mm -hmm. But I went to school there and, yeah, got in and. Started out in engineering and flamed out immediately again. You can't coast in a program like that. So I read the whole book, you know, the syllabus or for the, everything, and I'm like, broadcasting, you know, communications, broadcasting. That sounds like something is more me. I'm creative, and I can maybe coast <laughs> at that. I can get a career, get a job, and it'll be creative and fun and not math and hard. Yeah, what's funny is I was in the exact same uh, situation, essentially. I graduated from U of O, uh, University of Oregon, and um, I had an option of going into a business major and working really, really hard with the math requirements, all that stuff. School of Business is, is very stringent there. Or being a sociology major and actually enjoying my time in college. And I definitely went with the enjoying my, co- my, my college experience rather than working hard and making something out of it. So I'm, I'm totally on that same page with you. But it sounds like uh, the communications major paid off for you, correct? Yeah. I mean, it was, you know, even in college, it was like, you know, I, I, I didn't, I wasn't good enough for the team. And then the head injury, they told me, you know, athletically, we can teach you how to play football. You can start if you gain weight and you're into weightlifting. And I was like, I think I'd rather just do the weightlifting and not get hit on the head. And I was told by a neurologist. Oddly enough, I may have, I guess I'd have to be deceased to find out, but I may have this, you know, this concussion thing um, because there are signs of that too. And I was, I spent a whole lot of my uh, childhood getting in addition to football, just getting some hard hits from people's fists from bike accidents. But football is, you know, back then it was like lead with the head, hit with the head as hard as you can with the head. And I was all into that. And I was I was playing against guys that went on. I played against a guy in high school that went on the Super Bowl, and he was hitting me on the head really hard. But, uh, again, it all fed into the going into the communications. And then I thought, what am I going to do? Kind of the story of that career when you get into, uh, you know, I decided out of all of it, I would do TV and I was blessed to get an internship where I could actually be on TV because I thought I'm going to be the anchor man. I want to be the reporter. And they let me do that for like minimum wage in a kind of a middle-sized market, 70th market in the country. And there are like 300 markets. 
So there were people that were serious journalists who had earned their way there. And then I'm an intern and I'm doing, I'm standing in front of a camera and I quite frankly sucked at that. I mean, and I read, and luckily I was with a guy cause I was ready to be like, uh, this is the wrong choice. And he was the camera guy or the photo journalist. And he's like, have you ever thought of doing what I do? And I'm like, not really. And he's like, well, don't bail on the whole thing. Take my camera and I'll shoot the story and then we'll, we'll take some extra time and then you shoot it. And he did, he did that to me and he didn't have to do that. And he's like, he pulled me aside after that and he's like, this is what you, this is what you should do. You have an eye and I, they can't teach that. I don't know where you got it, but, um, and I didn't, I didn't know anything about it, but I did, for whatever reason, I, I had like a compositional eye. So I, right away I got a job in Omaha. I thought I was going to have to go like Sioux Falls or, you know, Pocatello, Idaho, some teeny weeny market and live, live in somebody's basement right away. You know, I was just like, boom, immediate gratification, really immediate success. I was off to the races. I was making okay money for a a college graduate and got married and bought a house and yeah it was like it was easy street for me and again i was like and i'm not even trying that hard um so yeah it goes in even more yeah so uh you basically you get done with college you get a job at the news station things transition from you being in front of camera to behind the camera and then you start learning like are you starting to kind of like go above and beyond to figure out how to do videography or is that something that just comes naturally to you? No, I mean, I, I had, a, I have this competitive nature. I mean, I always have wanted to be, and my parents, I'm sure instilled that in the hard work ethic and be a good guy. And, and cause they were good people, you know, and they were like, try to be the best, be the best. And I knew that athletically that if you, you know, if you want to start, you know, you, you gotta do that. You gotta be the best. So, there's this organization called the National Press Photographers or, uh, Association that still exists, but it was a real big deal back then. And this was way different. It's way different than it is now. There were three TV stations, maybe four in each city, and that was all you really had. If you wanted to see a story about somebody or a thing or an event or what was going on, whether it was a crime or a fire or a shooting or a political thing or a cool feature about a guy carving wood ducks on a bench or you had one way to see that. There was no iPhone, no no 500 channels. There were three, you know, ABC, NBC, and CBS. And I, I was working for one of those in my hometown, and I got involved with that national press thing, and that exposed me to people all over the country who were the best, the best of the best. And... And I'm like, where are they from? Why are they the best? And oddly enough, the, the mecca for what I wanted to do and what I'd start doing was in Denver, Colorado. And these guys were doing what amounts to like film shorts. And they were like two, three, five minute long stories about feature stories about things that were amazing. And I'd never seen anything like that. And I'm like, that's what I want to do. So I started calling them and saying, hey, can you send me your stuff? And these guys were cool enough to, for free, like mentor me. And oddly enough, I ended up working there and competing against these same guys. But I, I just soaked that up like a sponge. And I was like, and then I started putting my own spin on it. And, you know, within a, my first like two, three years, I started winning awards against those guys, even though I was in the small, smaller market. 
and and people that were I was working with and people in other cities and states were like, "You're good. You're gonna be. You're gonna be at the top if you keep going." And so, yeah, that really lit me up. And again, I, I wasn't pushing it. I wasn't like staying up all night and studying it. And you know, and I mean, it's funny. Technically, if you ask me anything about a camera or lights or color temperatures or uh, apertures or how how edit systems work, I have no idea. But once I learned it, I could, you know, it's like I, you know, like an artist that do they know about the brushes and the paint and all that? No, but what can they do with it? That's where my thing was. So as the business progressed to be more and more technical, I I started going to the left, if you might say, to the creative side of it. But it worked. I got away with it. Um, yeah. I mean, it sounds to me like you had everything going for you at this moment. You had the the wife, the house, the the budding career. You were excelling in your field against all odds. You know, it, it sounds like exponentially you were just, things were going your way. And now during this whole time, were you drinking? Yeah. Yeah. And it, see, that's the, that's, I mean, I love the way you put that. I mean, and I've learned about it in AA, but I didn't know about AA at the time and but I was drinking like a fish. I was drinking like a fish in college, and I was, I was a, I was a bouncer and a bartender at like the biggest college dance club place in my hometown. So they they said, well, you're big and you're muscly and all that, but you're, you're not a fighter. You're you know kind of this cute little all American looking boy, and I loved that too because I knew inside I wasn't, but I I knew I had that look. So they put me on the door. So I got to check IDs and I knew the bands and I was like, I, I'm this, you know, kind of like white trash kid from the wrong side of the tracks. Look at me. Look, I, I'm at, I'm on the door. These people that bands I used to go watch, they know me. I, girls want to get in free. They want cuts in line. I could pick people. It was like in a movie. I could say you in the back, you know, and they would tell me, hey, bring in the hot girls or the cool guys or the football players because guys from the Nebraska team would come down there or whatever. And, and I was me. You know, I was the rock star then. And then football flamed out and all that. But, yeah, I was living that rock star life. You know, I had, you know, the wife, the brand new little house. And I'm in TV and I'm shooting stories during the day with the guys I grew up watching, the sports guy, the weather guy, and these were guys making a lot of money. Even for that time in that market, they were, they used to pay them crazy money. You know, guys making a couple hundred thousand dollars a year. Wow. And the coolest thing about it was after work, I'm going to the bar with them or I'm going to the strip club with them, you know, not doing what they're doing, but getting drunk with them. I mean, I had this weather guy that back when weather guys were flamboyant, you know, and the women weather people wore bikinis and stuff. It wasn't like meteorologist. They were, that, that term was just coming about when I was in the business. And, you know, I, these guys were getting more drunk than me and throwing hot dogs at each other and stuff. And, and I'm like, is this really me? Is this, I mean, I, I was like, and in the job, I was getting a chance to meet politicians like, we were in Omaha, so all the politicians were coming through when they ran for president because the Iowa caucuses were there. So we were the biggest market for them to visit. So I was meeting Jimmy Carter and, you know, the Bush, all the Bushes, that, you know, and Michael Dukakis and uh, Paul Simon and all these guys. 
I wasn't just seeing them. I was in a room like, hey, how you doing? My, my name's Tim. Well, tell me about yourself. You know, like getting to know these people. And I'm like, and rock stars that came to town and athletes. And, and, and I ended up shooting this show for the Nebraska football team, the Tom Osborne show. I was a photographer on that. So I'm like, I didn't good enough to play for the team, but I'm shooting his show. And I was like friends with him because I was, we had to interview with him every week. I had access that nobody else had. I'm like, this life is unreal. And it happened so fast. And the drinking just, it was almost like I thought it was because of that. You know, it's like, I'm so gifted in, in this life. I think, you know, I mean, looking back on it, I probably did. It, 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 that rock star thing took me with it. And, and I was, I was believing that I was believing the BS about, you know, like, look at, look at this, check me out. You know, um, I can go anywhere and do anything I want. I can wave my hand and part the waters if I felt like that. I mean, it sounds to me like you had every reason to believe the BS though. I mean, you mean politicians, you have the dream job, you know, even though it wasn't what you originally intended. But I don't even know if you knew yourself what you wanted to do. It just kind of fell on your lap, correct? Yeah, I was real good at that. I mean, that's, I started out in the engineering because someone told me to. They're like, that's the big money. If you want to make money, do this. Yeah. And I never, I mean, I think early on in my life, you know, and I'm, I'm still discovering this now, I, I did what everybody told me to do. And then I would, if I could have has it, and please them, you know, I, and probably I was codependent then. I was, I, I grew up as a code, I was a codependency looking for something to be codependent on, whether it be what somebody told me to do and then my career and then, and drinking was right there because drinking was a party that I could create when there was no party. And I would go out with them and then it would continue uh, afterwards. You know, that was never enough there. There was no stop sign in me. You know, I was green light, 100 miles an hour, um, you know, and there'd be women around. I was never, uh, the infidelity was never on my radar, but, you know, drink, 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 crazy, 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 and then go get a 12-pack for home and stay up till 4 in the morning and then get up and do it all again and and go to the gym, <laughs> oddly enough, in the middle of that and say, look at me, man, I can... I, those guys would come in looking like a mess and I'm like looking all fit and everything and I'm, and I'm better than them. So that whole thing started like I'm better than everybody. I, I think I probably became codependent on that, like being the best in the room. Yeah, like you were the exception to the rule pretty much. Yeah, like I can be, you know, it's funny. Uh, they, uh, as a spoof, one of the TV guys when I was in Denver, they interviewed me and they were like, so I was like pretending to be a fan and I was calling myself like the host of my own show, like hate me TV. I think I got off on that. Like I'm from the wrong side of the tracks. Everything is against me, but I can, I can't beat you up, but I will beat you in this now. So it's my revenge on the world that I'm going to be the best photojournalist. I'm going to be, you know, the, the funniest guy. I'm going to be this guy who can drink people under the table. Yeah. Not, not good looking back on it, but when you're in it, you know, people are like, why, why did you go down that road? It's like, you know, when you're on that road, it's a perfect road. I mean, I'm looking forward to seeing when things start to turn for you. But uh, before we get to that, let's do a quick commercial break and we'll be right back. 
CPA dudes, where accounting is never boring. Their price is not based on time. Instead, customers decide what to pay them. They don't charge you for sending invoices, phone calls, emails, texts, or meetings. They just get the damn job done. Find them at cpadudes.com slash startup radio. Tell them Dave and Lad sent you, and we'll send you a very special surprise. Seriously, we will. Today's episode of the Felony Inc. podcast is brought to you by Publicize, a deconstructed PR subscription service which generates effective visibility for your business. Publicize handles all communications with the media and any content required to do this, such as press releases, editorial pitches, etc. And they offer a wide range of PR products and abilities out of which you can construct the PR package right for the future of your business. All right, ladies and gentlemen, if you're just joining us on Felony Inc. Podcast, our guest today is Tim Jensen, independent videographer working with Dave's Killer Bread. Uh, Tim is just about to elaborate on, he, you, you talked about the rise of your career. Uh, now, I think it's now it's time to talk about the turn of your career. Yeah, I mean, I progressed through, you know, I started in Omaha, I did a couple years there, and then Denver was always my thing, and, uh, you know, I was only like two and a half, maybe three years in, and I got a job in Denver, and uh, and at the time, it was, I was I was in over my head, and, uh, and I wasn't quite, I knew something was kind of off, so I went there, and I did some really good stuff, you know, I won big, some big awards, I was in the middle of some huge stuff but that was a big jump you know the responsibility of pressure to be in those situations and i kind of flamed out and it should have been red flag red flag because the drinking uh i kind of knew in the back of my head that there was a problem and it was starting to surface as a problem and less of a party so i went back to my hometown they were like oh you know it was like you know uh Thomas Wolf or whoever said, you can't come home, you can't go home. But I'm like, I can, I can go home. And even people told me that they're like, this, this won't work for you after a very short period of time. And they were right. So there was a new magazine show in Nashville. I went there, I was on air a little bit and I got to do my things and interview with this. Dan Miller was the host who had been in LA and on the Pat Sajak show and stuff. So I'm like on TV pitching to my stuff. I'm like, well, that was easy. I'm back again. But again, the drinking like was off the deep end then because my my then wife was back in Omaha still getting a um, a master's degree, and she, be, she we found out she was pregnant. So I had stress, pressure, success, all that, and drinking was. I don't know that it was a painkiller or an escape. It was like a party that I could create when there was no party. So I got back to Denver right away because I was good enough. You know, I won like some national first place awards. Like when Clinton got elected, I went out and did like a slice of life thing. And I'm like, I am better than I thought I, I was. And Denver came calling and said, you can come back to a different station. And again, the, again, the drinking, drinking, drinking more and more and more. But when I went back to that uh, station in Denver, I came in not as a young potential but as a rock star and i took off i immediately went to lillehammer for like six weeks to do the winter games and um i was i was i was doing cool stuff and drinking the whole time and there was a guy there that was with me who's now uh, deceased same age same mentality and we were lighting it up over there 
we were shooting amazing shit and and drinking all night long and our room was rooms are full of beer and yeah, I was a beer guy um, I never really liked the other stuff but it's alcohol is alcohol I just grew up with it I liked it you know I don't even know if I like the taste of it but I should have known there was something going on there because I just started I was drinking I think that's why I first started experimenting with you know drinking in the morning you know this hair of the dog thing that'll make me feel better and then I can function but I gained a bunch of weight. I was eating crappy food. I was pissed off and bitter about everything when I should have been like joyful. Like I'm in, I'm in Little Hummer, Norway with doing TV. I was hanging out with, I mean, Charles Corralt was there and Ed Bradley and, and Connie Chung. And, and, and that was when the Tanya Harding thing was going on. And we were like so high minded. We we're like, they, I saw people, the clusters of cameras chasing them around and, I'm like, I'm I'm not doing that. I'm above that. So I, I went over like I was doing stuff with Pe- Peekaboo Street about moose, uh, moose being on the on the ski run, and it was my idea. And I just went up to her at a bus stop and said, "Hey, can I talk to you?" And and we didn't do the press conferences. We were cutting edge, you know. We were pushing the envelope, and people were like, "Where did you get that story? How did you get an interview with her? What is this? Who are you guys? What kind of style is this?" So I was like, it was all around me. I was like, yeah. Um, I mean, it. you know, for my time and my business, it was, you know, I was like I was in the Super Bowl. I was like I was, I was, uh, you know, John Elway at the time was that. I was that kind of guy, and I, and I identified with him. And, I, you know, he's got his own issues. But I identified with him. He was a wild card, you know, and, and he was a gunslinger, and he didn't, fit what what you know he didn't fit in a politically correct thing and i got off on that like i can but it was a the train wreck had you know the slow progression down the dark tunnel had begun but i I was still getting away with it i was still getting away with it and i ended up in seattle uh because i was in denver at columbine and i was done with it i mean if you can imagine what you saw uh i I, that was through my eye, what you were watching live of bodies being drug across the front of the school and SWAT teams. And I was there and I was married and I had kids in school and I couldn't get a hold of them, but I had to do my job. I didn't have a bulletproof vest and I didn't have a way to shoot anybody or protect anybody. I was taking pictures of that. I was taking pictures of kids bleeding. They sent me to the nearest hospital where they were doing triage and they brought you know, one of those kids, the doors opened and I was hooked up to a live camera and I was right there, right there. They almost hit me with the door when they, they came in, they drove across like the grounds to get to the ER door and flew the doors open. And there was, I think I got blood on me. I mean, they were, this guy had bullet wounds all over him and they were just, and and I was trying to function and do my job. And they, they, you know, they even brought therapists in to talk to us at the TV station and nobody would go talk to them because it was like an ego thing. But that messed me up and I was done with news. So I heard about this magazine show in Seattle at King 5 called Evening Magazine. I put like 400 people went for the job or a lot of people went for the job and I got it. I mean, I still, I'm like, I'm, I'm still good. And then it was no more news, just features traveling all over the world really and doing what I did. But, and I thought I could get sober and I stayed clean for a couple of years because I just had my second child, my son. And 
I got up there. My wife was still back in Denver trying to sell the house and the drinking. It is what they say in AA. It's right there. It's waiting for you and it just waits for you. And you can say, oh, I got two. I, I had like two, three years sober. And I'm like, I can start all over and I'll be cool. Yeah. And I really believe that. And it was just waiting there for me. And I was off to the races. And then it just progressively began. Again, my, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, this whole part of me was going to Mexico, going to Hawaii, going all over the place, shooting these really cool magazine feature stories with like a half million dollars worth of equipment just for me and um, doing whatever I wanted to. And then trying to be super dad, super husband, big house, dog, hot tub, ski boat, timeshare in Mexico, all that stuff. And then at night, uh, uh, what I now know to be a, a out of control alcoholic, but thinking nobody knows. Nobody knows because I'm sitting in front of ESPN in my man cave, uh, you know, pounding beers, you know, uh, 24, 48, you know, in one night. And never really facing myself and saying, something's wrong, you know, Some, what's what's at the core of this? I did, I'm just like, have another beer. If I can get up and get my shit together, I'll do it. And that's what I was doing. So at what point from, uh, you were in Seattle for a while working, and then did you transition to Portland after that? or No, I was... You know, the, the, my marriage fell apart. You know, she basically gave me like an ultimatum and said, you know, you're a great guy, but the drinking, it's got to stop. And I was like, so I went into a rehab program up there, you know, like a 16 day thing. And <laughs> I, I didn't learn anything. I was good at saying, oh, I, I got this. Yeah, I'm smart. I thought I can think this. I'm smarter than your, the therapist. You know, don't tell me. You know, I, oh, 12 steps, I get that. I, I'm good. So you fixed me, I'm good. And I resented her for the ultimatum. I resented being there. I wanted to leave early, and then they asked me to stay extra because they said the young heroin addicts, heroin's a big problem up there, at least at that time it yeah. was. I think it still is. Um, and we were north of Seattle, closer to Bellingham, and that was a big issue up there. So it was mostly heroin addict younger guys. And... They did look up to me. They're like, you know, uh, uh, my physique gave me a ticket into their world. Otherwise, they could give a shit about me. But they're like, how do you look like that? What do you eat? What do you? So we'd have these exercise things, and they got in into that. But you know, anyway, I came out of there, and basically, that was like very short. Shortly after that, um, I mean, I had a real, real fall down. I mean, I I tried to take my own life. I mean, I. I was seeing a psychotherapist and all these people and getting a bunch of meds at the time, antidepressants, anti all these different things. And they and they're like the the science of this is you take it, see what it does, and if it doesn't work, we'll try something else. And they were cycling me. And I just I got to a point where I'm like, I'm done. And so I had like a couple months of all of them because my insurance would do that. And I I drank a whole bunch of beer and I I thought I had all four of them in front of me that they'd given me, like two months supplies and bottles. And I either consumed or tried to consume all three full ones of, of three different ones with a lot of alcohol in my system. And I woke up like in a, in a kind of a crazy ward of a, of a hospital, yeah. like strapped to the bed. 
falling out of the bed woke me up and I was there a couple of days and they said, you got to get into this treatment thing. And so I did that. Uh, later I found out that there were, the fourth one had disappeared, but it was in the house. So I thought that was like a very spiritual God thing, but got divorced. And then I was just, there was nobody. I had no monitor. So I was living in Craigslist bedrooms and trying to freelance, um, which is kind of where I'm at now, except I'm sober. And it was hard because some stories about me had gotten around. And it's funny, storytellers are storytellers to the nth degree. So there was what had really happened to me. And then there was the fiction of what they were saying about me. So my reputation of being really great fed that. Like, he's really great and he's a really fucked up he's really he's really bad he's really got a problem we don't know what it is but it's bad so somehow i ended up getting a i heard about a local tv job i was just like i'll get i need something i need benefits i need money and a local station in florida brought me down i went down there went back to news same thing happened you know no matter where you go you go there with you so i brought all my problems with me even though i thought i left them behind me and I worked in a couple markets down there, and that, I got my first DUI. And I thought that was the nail in the coffin. Coffin, And so I ended up, uh, you know, I went back to Seattle and spent some time with my son. And somehow the freelance thing started to take off again despite that. And I was doing freelance stuff and shooting for hoarders and house hunters, HDTV, Food Network, um, Alaska State Troopers. Mostly in Alaska, back when Alaska was, if you did anything in Alaska, that was a reality show. I was shooting some of those. And then they offered, a company in Seattle offered an opportunity to go to Russia and do this like dead, world's dangerous, most dangerous prison. And they're like, if you think Alcatraz was bad or whatever, it was some for like mass murderers or something on some island in Russia. And I was chosen. I was going to go do that. And I had to get background checked by that KGB and all this stuff. And then, you know, that then another opportunity to do local TV trumped that. So I skipped that and kind of burned some bridges. But oddly enough, I ended up like cleaning, cleaning restrooms or cleaning locker rooms at a gym in Denver. And I'm like, well, this is it. This is me. So I can work out for free, I'll make minimum wage, and TV's over. I can't, you know, I had two DUIs at the point, and I'm like, I lost my license for a bit, and then I self-imposed it a little bit longer, did some jail time. Florida, they don't care. Send us money. You don't see a jail. You don't even have to see the courtroom. Just give us some money, 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 money. And Colorado is a little different. They're like... We want your money, but you're also going to do some time. Yeah. So I did like 11 days there. And then I, out of the blue, I don't even know how it happened. It was a LinkedIn thing or something. Somebody saw something and, and they had an opening. And I thought, well, this will never happen because I got the DUIs. But I floated something past them and they're like, oh, my God, we know who you are. You know, you used to be in Seattle. Why would you want to work in Portland TV and do this? And I'm like, oh, you know. Uh, I love Portland and I'd been here, but I had no connection to Portland. So I just left whatever I had going in Colorado and came up here and they're like, yeah, it's been three years. We know about your DUIs because now everybody backgrounds everything like yeah. you're being vetted to run for president. And they gave me, they said, you just passed three years. Our insurance company is what calls the ball on this. They will insure you. You're, but, you know, 
please don't drink and drive. I mean, that's how ridiculous. Please don't drink and drive again. And I was like, oh, well, I was going to, but since you said that, I won't. Yeah. Um, so I came up here and I was here like a month and it's classic out of the big book in AA. I went out with a woman, you know, to, on a date and she's like, we're sitting up at some hawk's nest or some winery or something. And I was like, this, I am Elvis again. I am Bruce Spring. I really am. I can do all this messed up stuff and still get it back. That's how good I am. Look at me. And she goes, you want to try some wine? And I was like, oh, because I told her, you know, I'm a recovering alcoholic, blah, blah, blah. But I wasn't going to AA. I wasn't doing any of that. And it was a beautiful woman. And she's like, but I didn't know her. It was just a meet and greet thing. And the wine's sitting there in front of me. And I'm like, just these little, you know, a flight or whatever. Yeah. And I'm like, I can do this. I've been, I've been sober for uh, two and a half years. I, I can, but it only been like one. And I'm like, I can do this. I'm, I'm in the best shape of my life. I can have a little bit of this and just walk away from it. I think within two days, I had a 30 pack of ice beer in my room. You know, I was renting a room here and I, and I got, I, th- I, I, whatever I had potential in that job for a local station here in this city, and I was doing some cool stuff. I don't think anybody was watching the show. Uh, I, they they told us it was an asterisk, and I think it's kind of been downsized or gone the show. But I was out, you know, I went out uh, and shot something on the weekend, and I, and I had a couple beers, and I think my body's gotten to the point where it can't even process alcohol anymore. So whatever I drink was just sitting in my bloodstream; it couldn't even deal with it. And I knew I was in trouble. I was at the point where I couldn't get out of it. I was in that thing where I was shaking all the time. And if I didn't have a drink, I would feel worse. And if I did, it didn't do anything. And I was like, should I go to the ER? Because I've been to the ER a lot for detox and whatever they give you, a librium or something. And I didn't want to do that. Um, And I'm like, can I cold turkey this? And I said, well, I'll get through this weekend and then I'll... Get, I'll bring myself down. I'll taper down, and I was up all night, getting up every couple hours, having a having a couple of beers to keep myself right, or what I thought that was. And I went, I went and did that thing, and I was at a state park here, and it was gorgeous in the fall, and I was almost home. It's always that story. I was like a block from <laughs> home, and I I didn't even get pulled over. They didn't even they weren't even cruising. Somebody called in and said I didn't have my lights on because I had like my fogs on. And uh, they they stepped in front of me at a gas station, and they just they were like you know in one of the local towns here, and they waved me in, and that was it, man. A guy cuffed me, and I was like, my life's over. And he was like, no, it's not. You know, he's a kid, but he was cool, and I, I think he even started crying because we he spent some time with me. I think he tried to give me a, a chance to get my BAC down, and he waited, but it didn't. He goes, do you know how high it is? And I've heard higher, but but I've had lower too. But it, at the time, I'm like, I'm. This is the end. This is the end. Yeah, rock and, bottom. Yeah, and it, I'm like, I don't know what I'm gonna do. I don't even know where I'm at. Um, and I'm in jail here, and I, I literally did not even know. I'd only been here like a month. I'm like, I don't even know where I'm at, and I got nothing. I have like a couple boxes of stuff at somebody's house. I'm renting a room from. And I lost, you know, probably my family, my friends, my career. Yeah, it was tough. So then what happened after that? 
Um, you know, I did 90 days in jail, and it's like, you know, 90 days. You know, uh, you know uh, there are people 14 years in prison or 20 years in prison. Funny thing is, I didn't know a whole lot about it. When I was in Colorado, I isolated. I just walk. You, you do a lot of walking in circles. And the pod I was in it was a lot of like all a lot of gang members there in Colorado, and they were mocking me then. They're like DUI, and they're like, oddly enough, in some ways, it's more messed up than what they were going to have because they they had repeat felons. They were repeat offenders, but again, they were going to go out and work construction, and they could drive. And they're like, dude, you, you know, uh, I can't have somebody messing with my ability to drive because I'm a, I, I, I do sheetrock or I'm a plumber or I'm electric, and I didn't have any of that. I'm like, I can't do that. I can't do. It. And so here, then I'm like, lifetime, lifetime, li- uh, driver's license sus- suspension. What am I gonna do? What you know? I got no. And you're hit. You got all these f- fines and fees coming at you, and. Uh, and then they tell you the guys in jail, like if you're in county jail, they say prison's way better. If I could go to prison, I'd rather go because you can get a TV and there's stuff to do. Yeah. In a county jail here, man, I was just—it's a concrete box, and there were a lot of lockdowns going on. It was the holidays, so I spent Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's, my birthday. You know, I was in court. Like I think on my birthday, you know, with shackles all over me. Like I killed somebody, um, and I get it, man. I, I own it. I own that I did a crime, and that it's a danger, and that it's a problem. Um, you know, even the judge said, "I said, you know, I'm going to deal with my uh, with my disease." And he he's like, "I'm going to stop you there." I disagree with the disease. He's like, "If you got a disease, I'm going to throw you in jail and throw away the key." And I wasn't going to debate that with him, but uh, I do have a disease, and I'm dealing with it. But it was good, you know. I mean, it was good and bad. It was hard to hear that kind of stuff and and be faced with what you're faced with. And it's a, you know, rock bottom is not just a, a scene in AA or whatever. Then you physically have to crawl out of it. So I walked out of jail with the shorts and the T-shirt I had on. And a guy from Bridges of Change helped me. The jail set that up. Otherwise, I would have had nothing. I would have had no transportation, nowhere to go. And it was, I think, it was snowing that day. And I was in shorts and I think sandals. And he gave me a coat that somebody had, and he took me around for a couple of days and helped me get an ID wow. and just show me where I was, you know. And I ended up in like, you know, kind of a half, halfway house type thing. But there, it was all meth and heroin guys, and they were tweaking and stuff I don't know about, but crawling around on the floor. And there were like 10 guys living in a house that probably legally should have three. And everybody's paying, they're making you pay rent. And it was just... And I, I right away got started getting jobs, you know, through these organizations of jail. They tell you, I mean, I had the jail almost look me straight in the eye and say, I don't know if you're employable. I don't know, given who you are and what you did, if you're employable because of drinking beer. So it's not like, you, you know, once you're a felon, you're a felon, man. You're, you're in a club that nobody wants to hear the semantics of DUI. You're a felon. And I got hit with that right away. So if I wasn't like cleaning, I ended up getting a job cleaning bathrooms at a health club here. And I'm like, this is it. This is the best I can get. And I was working with people who really don't even have a mastery of, the, of this language. And that's neither here nor there. But they didn't really care about my background because I was going to be cleaning toilets and stuff. And it was enough to start paying my bills and, you know, progression through Oxford houses and whatnot. 
but still, you know, you're, it, it's, it's hard, but uh, I'm trying to every day rise to the challenge. So just real quick, because we have to wrap this up pretty soon, but uh, at what point did uh, Dave or did you connect with Dave Dahl? And then what are you doing specifically with uh, Dave's Killer Bread Factory? That's a total, you know, that that because they, they give this, they have this second chance opportunity. And they told me about that. I heard about it. And I thought I wasn't living anywhere near it at the time, but I went for it. And they did. They're like, well, you don't really care about the background. That's what this is. And so I'm called a partner, but I work in like the makeup department. So I'm doing panning of bread. So it's a pretty important process between the creating of the dough and the mixing of the dough to where it gets baked. I'm in the middle of that. So I'm physically doing a lot of moving and we have like a team and we rotate. But there's no real judgment there. And you're a part of an amazing, I believe in that. I eat that way. I'm a healthy guy. I'm, I'm into that kind of a product. And then somehow... I just started thinking, hey, you know, I do this video stuff and I'd done it before. And I researched that, you know, Dave Dahl, the guy who had started the company and what his story was. And and then I'm like, well, he's got to have like a website or something. And, and I researched that and he did. He did. And, and part of that, I watched a bunch of his videos and learned more about him. And it's like, if you want to be part of this, you know, reach out, you know, write us a note. So I just thought about it and prayed about it, and I wrote him a little thing like, Here, here's my story. You know, <laughs> I, I talk a lot, I know, but I s- crystallized it down to a, like a mission statement and said, here's what I am and what, and I think we are the same in a lot of ways. And I thought, well, I just sent that, nothing's going to happen. He responded to me like the next day, and he's like, I want to meet, I want to meet with you. And so I met with him a couple of times, and who knows where that goes, but... I would love to do that, like, you know, be able to do what I know how to do, um, like I was doing for hoarders and house hunters and TV stations, do it for people and tell their story visually. Yeah, and I think that you're accomplishing that very much so. Um, so as of right now, you're still working for Dave's Killer Bread? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, like I pitched to him even, you know, I, I don't have the infrastructure really yet, so I'm in the middle of the process. I'm not a success story as far as, hey, I've got this great video production company up and running, but I know the kind of equipment that I could use to do it. I, there's like a real clean, lightweight version, cheaper version, or a more involved version, but my skill set is what I bring. So when I was shooting for HDTV in those places, I just would show up with my my body and my skills and they would provide the camera and the editing and all that would be not my infrastructure. But now in this position, I would ideally like to have my own. So then even for people here, you guys do, when people go to a website, instead of hunting and fetching for like a little iPhone thing or some graphics or a typed, a, a textual uh version of the story, an immediate video, that's my style, which is character-driven visual storytelling, would play. If it's your business, if it's Dave's Killer Bread, if it's somebody who's got a nonprofit, if it's a church group that's helping uh, save people in addiction, if it's just an individual who says, I've recovered and here's my story, um, I'm good at that. I'm good at that. And um, in a way, it's like what you guys are all about. You take the middleman out of that, which is the TV station who's not going to let me back in the room, who's going to bar the door, and they rightly so because yeah. I can't drive. So, Tim, I mean, just a very uh, inspirational story, uh, incredible story, actually. 
Um, for the people listening right now that might want to hire you or maybe contact you about doing video work or just any kind of hiring for your expertise, how do people get a hold of you? Uh, what's a good way of uh, if someone wants to contact you? I mean, you know, I probably wouldn't give my phone number out over the air, but uh, <laughs> I, I, I have a Facebook thing. I'm going to reactivate that today, and they can reach out to me that way. I have an email. I don't know if you... You know, I could... Uh, yeah, what's the email? Yeah, it's my name, T, uh, Tim Jensen 63 the number, you know, T-I-M-J-N-S-E-N-6-3 at gmail.com. And uh, I'm really good, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a hybrid even within what I do, uh, my style, you know, and I do. I, I'm, I'm, I'm humbled now by life, so that whole, you know, I'm the star of the show thing is you got to do it and you got to go there to figure out what, you know... You don't know until you know, right? Big, Biggie Smalls? Did Biggie Smalls? Can I quote Biggie Smalls on this show? <laughs> you can. Uh, <laughs> um, but that's what happens. And, you know, people that aren't in it and haven't done it don't get it. But I've been through it. And, you know, you know, people like Dave get it. And, and it never ends. It's a daily struggle. But I think I bring that to the table. And I'm just good at meeting with people and, and conceiving an idea uh, visually, you know, through what people have to say and what they do and not talking heads. You know, there's a, so many boxes on your screen out there on all these cable channels, just boxes and numbers and graphics flying around. If you play guitar, I, I'm good at showing you, you know, uh, you playing your guitar, if you carve things, if you paint, if you do pottery, if you make designer tees, whatever it is, I know how to visualize that and let your character and your soul and your spirit come through. And what I think is the most powerful way you can tell a story that exists right now, other than being in the room, yeah. you can take a million or a billion people into your life and show them something in a couple minutes or in a couple of seconds of video. And I'm, that's what I do. And I'd love to be able to you know, that's my instrument. That's my music. I'd love to be able to play again. That sounds like you're you're very talented at it. And, um, you know, you've been, uh, Tim, you've been a great guest today. I really appreciate you coming out here to Felony Inc. podcast. Hope to have you back uh, in the future. Just check in with you, see how everything's going. That'd be awesome. Um, just to sign out real quick, thank you for joining us on another quality edition of Felony Inc. podcast every Friday morning, 10 a.m. here at NetSpace. And uh, this is Dick Hennessy signing out. Thank you for tuning in. I'll see you next time. Support for today's episode comes from our friends at Ruby Receptionists. At Ruby, they've mastered the art of turning rings into relationships. Their team of remote receptionists answer all your calls live as if they're right there in your office. And with Ruby's mobile app, you can easily control how they screen, transfer, and take your messages. Together, you and Ruby transform your phone into the sales engine it was meant to be. Visit callruby.com slash startup radio to sign up, or better yet, call them at 833-861-8100 and use promo code STARTUPRUBY. Tell them Felony Inc. sent you and get $150 credit. You're listening to the Startup Radio Network. Listen. Learn. Launch. 10% of our gross revenue goes directly to women entrepreneurs in developing countries around the world through Kiva's microfinance program.